Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to The Invested Investor. I can't describe how excited I am today because I'm sat opposite Herman Hauser. Herman is a distinguished figure within the European startup ecosystem. His entrepreneurial ventures include Acorn and Active Book Company, both of which successfully exited. He was also involved in the incorporation of Arm. Since 1997, he has concentrated on investing, having co-founded Amadeus Capital Partners. Herman, you've seen the rapid rise of the tech industry within the UK and Europe. Where did it all begin? Well, often the beginning, especially of the Cambridge phenomenon, is uh, taken as the founding of uh, Cambridge Consultants uh, over 50 years ago. And that's probably as good a starting point as any. There have been lots of pieces of research that appeared on Cambridge in particular, where all the Cambridge companies came from. And one that was done at the uh, Judge Institute showed that most of the uh, companies at that time came either directly out of the university, out of CCL, Cambridge Consultants, or out, out of Acorn Computers, my first company. So each of these, I think, contributed 100, 150 uh, so at that time, it, it was the sort of the beginning of the phenomenon of deep technology investing in Cambridge and, and also the UK. And one of the nice things to witness now is that deep technology finally has received the recognition that I think it deserves. People are now, even the public is getting very excited about deep technology projects because they know that breakthroughs in the universities might turn into significant companies and significant contributions to uh, society within a short number of years, you know, five to 10 years rather than the 30 years that we were used to. Let's take it back to ACORN. And you did a PhD in physics at Cambridge University. What influenced you to go from your PhD in physics to becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I've often been asked this question, and there are really two parts to the answer. One is because my father was an entrepreneur, so there seems to be a, a relationship between what you experienced in your family and what you then want to do yourself. And the other was uh, Chris Curry, who um, uh, came to see me and said, uh, why don't we start a company? And quite honestly, it was then the hundred pounds that it cost to start a company. He said, you know, do you have 50 quid? And I said, oh, I've got 50 quid. So we started this company. If it had cost a thousand pounds at the time, we might not have started Acorn Computers. But, uh, you know, we just um, wanted to have a go and, and it worked out very well. So what were those early few months like? You've got your 50 pounds each. You've got obviously a 50% share. How did it all start? Well, it was a very, very exciting time because... Uh, it was the time when the BBC had just uh, produced a program called When the Chips Are Down. And what they meant by the chips was actually microprocessors. And they painted this uh, vision of a future where every household might have a chip. <laughs> you know, little did they know. And um, this sort of mesmerized the whole nation. Uh, people were really excited about this possibility that there were these chips that could automate things for them, you know, like washing machines and, and the lights and, and so on. So there was a great hunger to find out more about chips, which, you know, really were microprocessors. And there was a student club at that time called the Microprocessor Group, where all the people who had an interest in microprocessors 
went and I signed up to that as well and, and got to know uh, Stephen Ferber and Sophie Wilson and, and many people that later on worked for Acorn Computers. Okay. So in those early years, how quickly did you grow the company with Chris? Well, it was at that time, Acorn Computers was the fastest growing company in the UK ever. We went from zero to 100 million pound turnover in five years, which was unprecedented then. And it's still, uh, you know, unusual for a company to grow that fast. But there was no venture capital at all. So we actually financed this company the old fashioned way with a bank overdraft. And I went to see the bank manager. And you might know this uh, very iconic golden clock just opposite King's College oh, yeah. uh, that has a chronophage, this uh, grasshopper that eats the time every minute. Well, that actually was the entrance to National Westminster Bank that I went through to see Mr. Knight, who was the bank manager, and told him that we wanted to start a company and we needed an overdraft of £10,000. And he said, oh, isn't it jolly good to see young people start companies? <laughs> and then he did his due diligence which was, now, which college did you go to? And his office had a window that uh, looked out onto King's College, so I could point out through his window, said, that one over there. He said, oh, that's all right, here is 10,000 pounds. <laughs> so that was his due diligence. Now, a few months later, we came back and said, you know, things are going very well, but we need uh, 50,000. And he said, oh, it's jolly good to see everything going well, here's 50,000. And then, uh, you know, a couple of years later, we came back to him and said, oh, things are going really well now, but we need a bigger overdraft. And he said, well, how much do you need? And we said, well, a million. So <laughs> this, you know, he, he just never come across any company that asked him for a million pound overdraft uh, or a million pound facilities. It went up to the regional office. They had never come across a case like this before. So it was completely stuck. And then, although at that time, we already had 1.3 million pounds of prepaid checks in an escrow account of people who wanted the BBC Micro. So we were very lucky that we then met Matthew Bullock, who was the only banker in the UK who had ever been to Silicon Valley and studied Apple. Apple was started a year before Acorn Computers and was already a great success. And he realized that we had a computer that was just as good as the Apple and we could do the same thing in the UK. And the only risk that he took was could we produce the BBC Micro and therefore collect the money out of the escrow account. Yeah. So he gave us a million pound overdraft. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, looking back, I just can't believe that they did that. But <laughs> So for listeners, the million pound overdraft, was that more of a loan that was given to you as a runway? I think it was actually an overdraft. <laughs> you know, clearly it wasn't a standard overdraft because, you know, clearly we didn't have enough money. We would have gone bust if we didn't have that loan. I suppose it's a loan, really, rather than overdraft. And then quite a senior banker from Barclays then came to me to negotiate the details of this loan. And I remember, I think he wanted something like two of a base. And <laughs> being so naive about these things, you know, first time CEO and seeing this, I said, no, 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 2% is far too high. And I started haggling with him. And he managed to negotiate him down to 1.5%. Oh. It was a ridiculously low interest rate for the risk that he took. And, but he was so taken aback that he gave me 1.5%. So that's how we financed Acorn. That's how Acorn became 
the only company that I know in the world that had a capital gain of a million fold. So every pound that we put in was worth a million pounds when we were in public. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about the BBC and that 1.3 million. How did that come about? And tell us a story about that. Mm. Well, the BBC in its wisdom decided after this excitement that they've produced with the program, The Chips Are Down, to educate the nation about microprocessors. So they started a thing called the computer program, which originally was going to be a 10-part series to tell the nation what computers can do. Uh, It then ended up to be a 30-part series because it was so unbelievably successful. And in their wisdom, they decided that the only way they can educate the nation about computers if there was a low-cost computer that people could buy to go with the program. And they had worked with uh, Newbury Laboratories for a couple of years to produce such a computer, and they still didn't have a prototype. So they finally decided to open it up and ask six people or six companies to bid for the BBC contract. And uh, let's see if I can remember them. It was Clive Sinclair, of course, who told them not to go anywhere else. They have no option. The only sensible solution for them is to go with the ZX81, or maybe it was already the Spectrum. Then uh, there was a company called Tangerine. There was Oric. There was a Welsh entry with the Dragon computer. I think the fifth one was NASCOM. Oh, yeah which was a well-known home computer kit at the time, and then Acorn Computers, which was us. And they saw us on a Monday with a specification which had everything in the kitchen sink in it, typical BBC, and they were very specific about what they wanted, and that's why they didn't go with Clive Sinclair, because Clive Sinclair didn't have a number of things that they wanted, like a proper keyboard rather than the dead flesh keyboard of the Sinclair Spectrum. And he didn't understand that you have to fit in with the BBC because they've got very clear ideas of what they wanted. And as luck would have it, Steve Ferber already had a computer design in his drawer that he called the Proton, because our first successful computer at Acorn Computers was called the Atom, and the manual to it was called Atomic Theory and Practice. (laughs) And the Proton, you know, was a clear design already, but it was only a paper design. So I said to Stephen, is there any chance of having a prototype by Friday? And he said, no, absolutely not. This is a crazy idea. So I rang uh, Sophie Wilson and said, Sophie, I've just been talking to Stephen. He said, if we really try hard, we might have a prototype by Friday. Would you be in? She said, this is completely mad. This cannot be done. But if Stephen is willing to do it, I'm going to do it. So we worked for three days and three nights. And there is a nice... uh, docudrama called uh, Micromen of the BBC, which traumatizes this situation, but it's very close to the truth that on Friday morning, uh, the computer didn't work. (laughs) And I then said, guys, the reason why it doesn't work is because we've got this umbilical cord with the development system. We could just cut that cord, put the program into EEPROM and power it up all by itself and it will work. And they rolled their eyes and said, well, okay, you're the boss, we'll do that, but there's no chance. And it did work. So the BBC arrived, and they couldn't believe that they would have a computer five days after they told us what they wanted, after having waited for two years with Newbury Laboratory, and they didn't have a prototype yet. So they were impressed by that, and we got the contract. So how many did they order then? We had to 
proved to them that we could produce 10,000 in the first year. Yeah. And we sold 100,000. Wow. <laughs> so that was the start of the huge growth for Acorn. And it then became the standard in British schools as well. Yeah. And many software companies and games companies that now exist uh, say that the reason why they could produce these companies and these uh, clever programs is because they all learned how to program uh, on the BBC Micro in the schools. Because it was, uh, Sophie Wilson just did a spectacular job on BBC Basic. It was such a, an easy programming language to, and a, and a proper programming language. And it had an easy way of including assembler language. So people also learned about assembler. And the school, the computing teaching in UK took a big step back when PCs were introduced because PCs didn't have that programming environment. Every school kid would know how to walk up to a BBC micro and say, print, Joe is a silly bugger or something. <laughs> and then fill the whole screen with, uh, you know, Joe is silly or uh, I love Mary or something. <laughs> and they just learned how to program. The other thing that, that happened, which was very important and very interesting, the easiest way of getting new programs and new games was to actually type them in from programs that were printed in Practical Electronics and Acorn User, because every publication uh, had programs in it. Yeah. And of course, they always made mistakes when they typed it in. So when they made a mistake, it said error in line 75, 74. So then they went back and said, well, well, what, what did I do wrong? And that's how they learned how to program. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was, so everybody who left school at that time, knew how to program. Yeah. And when the PCs came, they learned how to use Word and Excel, but they didn't learn how to program anymore. Yeah. Until, I guess, nowadays. And people Until now, with the, with the code clubs. Yeah. yeah. So that was my generation that missed out, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very sad. It is very sad. Okay, so let's move on to Acorn growth. It's growing strongly. You then went to IPO it? Yes, we IPO'd it. We took it public. It grew to a market cap of 200 million, which... You know, nowadays on 100 million revenue, you'd have a much higher valuation than probably your 4x revenue. So. But then we got into serious uh, financial difficulty because the next product that we launched, which was the Electron, which was a, a low-cost version of the BBC Micro that everybody wanted for Christmas. And we didn't manage to get them out for Christmas because we had a big problem with the ULA from Ferranti, the, the chip. We just didn't manage to get it uh, done When was time. the release then? Was it just slightly after or was it months after? It was just after Christmas, but we missed the Christmas rush. And then we finally sorted out all our production problems and had them coming in by the lorry load. And the next Christmas, everybody wanted to buy CD players rather than <laughs> home computers. The, the sort of hype had dissipated. And, you know, we didn't know how to turn off these large orders that we had. And we had a cash flow problem. And we finally had to be rescued by Olivetti, who was uh, a wonderful shareholder. And I became vice president of research for Olivetti, which is really the only proper job I've ever had in my life. And I really enjoyed those three years at uh, Olivetti. So, so Olivetti is an Italian company. Did you move to Italy? I did. I moved to Ivrea. It was the number one PC company in Europe at the time with a $7 billion revenue base. So it was a fantastically exciting time. But they didn't have a lot of uh, R&D, so I was asked to set up R&D labs. And I had seven R&D labs all over the world that produced spectacular results, including the ones in Cambridge that then produced a number of you know, really 
successful companies like Verato, which became a $5 billion company. And, yeah. uh, and just the share that Olivetti got on Verata more than paid for the whole lab, all the investment that they ever made in the lab for the whole life of the lab. <laughs> it was great success. That is a great success. So you've got the entrepreneurial bug now. And how many years did you work for Olivetti for? Three years. Three years. And then you had the idea for Active Book Company. Well, both Chris and I have always been very entrepreneurial. So even during the early days of Acorn Computers, we supported uh, other companies. So we had a, a company called IQ Bio, which was actually doing a PAP test, a prostate acid phosphatase test. It's a life science, life science company, which was uh, very successfully sold to uh, a Danish pharmaceutical company. So we've been sort of doing business angel investments very early on. Yeah. And then during Olivetti, I had this wonderful person who was the vice chairman of Olivetti, El Serino Piol, who I actually started a venture capital company with called 4CV. So that was my first uh, excursion into venture. And we did a lot of corporate venturing together with Olivetti. So we made lots of uh, investments at Olivetti. It was in America. Stratus Computers was uh, one of the famous ones. And El Serino was uh, just a wonderful uh, mentor for me. So you obviously got the entrepreneurial bug from your father and then set an up Acorn. What was Active Book Company and what was the product? So that was when I came back to Cambridge. I, I started Active Book Company. And the idea was that most people knew how to write. So if you could create a user interface where people could write on the screen rather than having to type, yeah. you'd have a much bigger audience. So this was quite a, a seductive argument. And there was a lot of excitement about pen computers. The US had a famous startup called Go, which was backed by Kleiner Perkins. And I remember turning up with my active book company project at Esther Dyson's PC Forum conference. This was the conference where everybody met. So Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and uh, Larry Allison were always there. We often were on the same table. And... Esther is the daughter of Freeman Dyson, the famous uh, physicist, and she ran for 10 years. The PC Forum was the place where everybody in high tech met, because PC, of course, was the computer at the time. And she asked me to give a presentation. <laughs> so one of those funny things. And I said, what do you mean a presentation? You know, I don't have any foils with me. No, 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 she says, use PowerPoint. So I said, what's PowerPoint? <laughs> And she said, well, it's the software by Microsoft where you can, you know, project these things. I said, well, I said, well how am I going to get PowerPoint? Yes, you just go and ask Bill. So I went to Bill and said, Bill, could, could I have a PowerPoint <laughs> thing? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the night before, Adele Goldberg of Park Systems, she was a small talk expert, happened to be an expert in PowerPoint. So she, she was very kind. She helped me put this presentation together. So... There I was, Microsoft went first, giving the presentation on their pinpoint uh, solution. And then came Go, which was backed by Kleiner Perkins, John Doerr, and Vinod Kozlov. So they, 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 you know, they were the famous uh, VC, and this was the, one of the most talked about startups in, in the Valley at the time with uh, Jerry Kaplan. And then came I with the Active Book Company. And at the end of these three presentations, Esther said, now, how many of you are going to write for the Microsoft environment? And about, you know, 100 people put their hands up. How many people are going to write for the Go environment? 
and about 100 people put their hands up. I said, oh, no, she was going to <laughs> How many people are going to write for the active book company? And the 100 hands went up. So it looked as if the pen computing market was going to split three ways. <laughs> so Vino had me around, you know, the very fancy suite at Kleiner Perkins and said, why don't we merge active book company with the hardware part of Go? Yeah. Which we did, and that became EO, and that was the main competitor to the Newton because Apple brought out the Newton. But sadly, both the Newton and EO didn't succeed because uh, people didn't actually want to write on computers. As it turned out, they preferred the keyboard. So it was a vision that wasn't right. <laughs> it was a vision that led on to what is now a smartphone though, isn't it? Yes, yes it did. And uh, actually many smartphones do have now pens. And the thing that convinced us all that the pen was going to be a revolution in user interface is that all the user interface studies have shown that the pen was the fastest way of picking a single pixel out of the screen. So the dexterity that we have with the hand-eye coordination on a screen is phenomenal, much better than with a mouse. So you can do it faster, you can do it better, and you can write. So this was quite a convincing argument. We, we absolutely passionately believed that this was going to revolutionize computing. Well, it didn't. <laughs> we got it wrong. <laughs> so what did you do differently with Active Book Company compared to Acorn? How did you run it differently? Was, was there anything that you learned from Acorn that you kind of transferred into Active Book Company? Well, there are many things that were the same. It was a breakthrough technology. It was working with exceptionally bright people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have impressed Kleiner Perkins and everybody there. It was actually a small talk system, so we embraced a new object-oriented programming. Uh, so that was uh, all very exciting. The difference was, of course, it was really a second stage in the because PCs already existed and uh, you know it wasn't uh, as revolutionary as the BBC Micro. It was a version of a computer, and it was a portable computer, uh, of course. So it had it was battery operated, and in that sense, I learned that of course lower power was was very important, and you had to think about. Uh, you know, when to switch the screen off uh, so that you don't drain the battery, so all those sort of things. And the new thing was a much closer connection with Silicon Valley. So we then had a development team in Cambridge, but also a development team in the US. And some of the Cambridge people went to the US. And from a technical point of view, it was a great success. It was the first pen computer together with the Newton at the time, and in a way, it was the forerunner of the iPad. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Yeah. That connection with Silicon Valley, did that then lead on to your involvement with ARM? Uh, yes, it was actually at the same time that Apple was looking for a new processor for the Newton. They were working with AT&T on a microprocessor called the Hobbit. And Larry Tesla, who was in charge of the Newton project, it was, it was just an amazing decision. He did not trust AT&T. He preferred a little Cambridge startup to do his the microprocessor for, for the Newton. And he argued correctly that AT&T wouldn't follow through with The Hobbit, which in the end they didn't. They killed it because they had killed the microprocessor before. So he, he knew that they, you know, they try something and if it doesn't quite work, they abandon it and just scrap it. 
And I suppose he argued that the little Cambridge company had nowhere else to go. So there was never going to abandon that process. <laughs> and, and, and Apple could fund it anyway if they wanted to. So they bought um, 43% of ARM for $1.5 million, wow. which was the only money that ever went into ARM. Wow, until it floated just a couple of years ago. Oh, no, sorry, it didn't float, sorry, sold, sold, yeah. Well, it floated before that it became a public company and then it was sold for $32 billion. But John Scully, you can read that on the internet, this is not me talking, said that Apple would not have survived had they not been able to sell their $1.5 million stake for $800 million at the time when they were in really serious financial difficulty. That's John Scully saying it, not me. <laughs> and that was a period when Steve Jobs had left and then right. he came back. And Apple was uh, making losses and um, couldn't finance the company anymore. We actually saved Apple, <laughs> which is actually not widely known. Thank you for listening to part one of Herman Hauser's truly incredible journey. It was fascinating to hear how he managed to secure funding from the bank for Acorn Computers and how the team managed to put together a product for the BBC in just a few days. Be sure to listen to part two, which includes his top tips to entrepreneurs, as well as his continued angel investments. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. <laughs>